Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi everybody, Nate Langson here. Sorry we didn't have a regular show for you last weekend, but one of the things that got in the way of actually making that happen was a festival that I was at called the EdTech Podcast Festival, which was happening here in London. And I was on a panel with three very interesting individuals talking about how AI and education are coming closer together and what can AI do to help education. And so I thought rather than have absolutely no episode between the last one and the next one, which will be coming up this weekend, why not publish the entire conversation that I had on stage with these eminent guests and give that to you in the week? So that's what's coming up now. So this was recorded at the EdTech Podcast Festival this last weekend. Hope you enjoy it. And we'll be back in a few days with our regular scheduled programming with Ian Morris. Um, hello, good afternoon. It is the afternoon. Yes, it is the afternoon. Um, so my name is Nate Langson. Uh, in the day, I am a technology uh, editor and journalist at Bloomberg News. Um, and then by night and mostly evenings, I'm also a podcaster and I host uh, a show I created called Text Message, which for the first time ever is projected in large letters above me, which is quite exciting. Um, we're going to spend quite a lot of time today talking about how automation, and specifically artificial intelligence, is creeping more and more into classrooms and study halls. Um, but what's on the horizon and how do we make sure it's effective and not something we maybe look back on and see ourselves using learners as guinea pigs in an experiment that we maybe wish we hadn't done. Um, so to have an interesting conversation, we need some interesting guests, and I'm lucky to have three of them here. I'm going to let them introduce themselves. Um, we'll start to my right. Okay. Hi. Um, I'm Cheska Ui, and I work for a company called Century Tech. Um, Century Tech already produces a platform that has AI in it to personalize learning for students, um, and it gives the data insights back to teachers. Um, I'm a former science teacher, but um, now I work in technology um, to sort of get it out there into schools and make sure it's being used effectively. Thanks, Jessica. Christina. Oh, hi, everyone. My name is Christina. Um, I've been living in Australia for the past 10 years, and I've only just been uh, moved back in UK in the last like, three weeks. So they're excited to be here. Um, so I work in a company called Nevitas. It is an, a global education company. Uh, and we also just recently start our corporate venture um, called Nevitas Ventures. So that is to partner and also invest in those interesting high potential ed tech startups and, and business. Last but not least, Ben. I'm Ben Deboule. Um I was a school teacher, but I escaped um, and went back to university to do a PhD at the University of Edinburgh in the very, very early days of, of AI um, and started off in AI education back in the 1970s doing stuff with Logo and primary school teachers. So I've kind of been both a teacher trainer and also a real teacher. And I've been really interested in issues around how we can get intelligent tutoring systems to act like humans as far as they possibly can. Jessica, let's start at the deep end. Um, you've got a, a tool, a system that, that 
blends AI with classrooms. Um, how does that work? That's a big question. But, um, well, essentially, from a teacher's perspective, um, as that's what I was, and I was teaching science, so I had um, nine classes. Each class had around 25 kids or, or maybe more. What, what age group was this, sorry? Um, I was in secondary, so year seven up to year 13. Um, and I had to know for each student what they liked, what they disliked, how, how well they knew different aspects of the curriculum, how well they performed in different skills. Um, and I had to then tailor my lessons for that. So that's before I had to then make sure that they were happy and everything like that. So um, what our system essentially does is provide the students with a supported way in which to learn parts of their different curriculum that they're exposed to and be supported in terms of the AI can work out what they should be doing next, whether it's to stretch them, whether it's to support them and go back and do a cross-curricular link. And as a teacher, I know exactly what they've been doing. So then I know um, how well they've been performing in different areas and actually um, where then I now need to intervene. So I definitely see our platform, although yes, it's using technology and that's sometimes quite big and scary. Actually, all it's doing is making me better informed so I can do my job a bit better. And it's taking away some of that stuff that I really didn't want to do, which was give them a test, then mark it, then input the data, then see where the gaps are. Even then, I don't know particularly within a big topic where the gap was. And what's the interface for this? I mean, we talk about you know the interactivity between uh, teachers and, and students, but is this... Uh, uh, like a web interface? Is it some kind of device? Like, wh what is it? So it's an online platform. So essentially, um, if you're if you've got a web-enabled device, you'll be able to log in as a student or a teacher, and then you can see your data or your whatever you're supposed to be learning. So you can use it in the classroom if you if they have devices, um, or it can be a home learning tool. And then um, as long as you can get onto the internet, you can access it. So we've got. Um, even people out in Dubai, and we're looking at going into the Lebanon um, to support schools who essentially have the internet so they can use us. Now, you, you, uh, you were, a, were a science teacher, um, and a lot of the conversation around AI and automation sometimes focuses on the fact that it will potentially destroy jobs. Some studies say it will create more jobs uh, than it destroys, uh, but either way, some jobs will go away. So did you sort of duck out of teaching at the right point just before machines take over? Or do you actually see what you're doing as, as purely complementary and not replacing the, uh, the fleshier educators of the world? Yeah, I think, um, yeah, I don't think I ducked out because I thought something was gonna take my job. But um, it's definitely a thought that's out there that, oh, could we just um, teach just using online platforms? But actually, we know that teachers' jobs are huge and that they don't just span the knowledge acquisition or just getting them to know this one thing. Um, it's so much more than that. It's the communication, all the different people you meet in school, even if it's just your peers. But that, that quality of interaction, the social and emotional development, probably can't be replaced for any time soon by automation. Um, and that's where we really see, yeah, our tool as, as an assistant to empower those conversations and empower teachers and students to know more about each other and and facilitate those conversations. Well, we're going to come shortly to uh, talking about who's asking for this, who's investing in this uh, in just a moment. But, but just before we do, Ben, I, do you, like, how can we be sure that, that systems like what Cheska's talked about and what you know, exists in the market as well, um, 
is, a, is able to adapt to individual learners as well as, as groups? What's, what, what do we have to look out for there? Well, there have been quite a lot of studies of individual systems, and we've had enough studies of individual systems that people have written analyses of um, many studies um, and tried to see what the, the overall picture is. Like a meta-review sort of Like meta-reviews, yeah. yes. So, uh, and I've written a meta-meta-review uh, in the sense that I looked at the meta-reviews and tried to see the picture from, from the individual meta-reviews. And the picture is quite, quite positive. If you compare these systems with uh, what we might call ordinary um, classroom teaching, they, at least on learning outcomes, maybe not on the social and emotional side, but at least on learning outcomes, they do better. Okay? And they do better by about half a standard deviation or, or an effect size of 0.5, which, means, which translates into about 10 to 12% better on average for the kids in that class with, with a system compared with a, a classroom. But when you compare these systems with one-to-one -one human tutoring, they do worse. Um, the, 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 the skilled individual teacher with one child or with one, with, with one pupil does better than an AI and an ed system. And that's now averaged over, I think, something like 180 individual studies of systems. So we've got some reasonable grounds for optimism that they do they do, do okay, but the criteria that were used were essentially learning gains and not the other more intangible issues around that education also deals with. Yeah, and you touch on an interesting point there that, that I'll kind of come to later, but I'm going to do it now because uh, we basically just mentioned it, which is the, the, the fact that we do need to maintain a, a large element of human interaction, not just with children, but with, with, um, with older learners as well. Do you, do you see it being a problematic that essentially we're saying that AI can be better than humans in a class environment? Um, <laughs> Yes, I can see. I can see it being problematic. Uh, it's problematic for a number of reasons. One is because it kind of implies that that it's better than teachers in some general sense, as opposed to um, saying, well, actually, if we think of a teacher with 30 or more kids, managing those, that the system, which is essentially one system per child, is doing better. That's not such a big deal. Um, uh, so. The, the, and there's a worry that, put, that politic, politicians will say, "Oh, well, in which case we don't need to pay we don't need to pay teacher salaries, so we can just buy 30 of these boxes, and that'll be fine." And that's just ludicrous, of course. So it's like self-service checkout, but for self education. Checkout, but who wants? You know, who, I always go to the checkout person because I actually like the interaction, and um, and. Uh, I think that the vision of schools where, or maybe not even schools, some centre, a, a warehouse where kids are bused to and they just sit at a screen all day for the, you know, every day, is, is ludicrous. It's, you know, we have to put kids somewhere. We have schools for other reasons other than education because their parents need to work. But the notion somehow that they can just be sitting at screens all day is just silly. Um, and even at the present time, with, with lovely systems like Century, somebody has to manage the kids' interactions with Century, that, to introduce it, to make sure that they use it productively, to make sure they know what, how to reflect on what their experience was. So teachers have got a really crucial role. So I don't see this as AI and Ed versus teachers. I see this as AI and Ed plus teachers. It's an effective 
classroom assistant, in my view, where teachers can offload some work onto the, onto the system, not all of their work, but some work, while they get on with something else. And the something else that they get on with is crucial. Well, we'll come back to that point in, in just a moment, Jessica, because I just want to um, touch on the point that essentially what we don't want then are, are technologies that are for want of a better expression, asking kids to put their uh, their study books in the bagging area and getting frustrated um, because that's incredibly annoying in shops, let alone in, in schools. Um, so, um, Christina, when you're, as an investor, when you're looking at the market and, and the demand and the trends uh, around all of these technologies, where are you seeing the, that demand coming from? And what, do people, what are people actually seeing as being the next, the next innovation that's going to help with all this? Um, yeah, so basically just like um, probably a year ago, so we did a study um, around the global ed tech sector because we're trying to really understand what's happening in that sector. So we add, um, so we actually identify probably there are around like 6 billion USD investment that goes into those um, post-study area, which is like you know, career planning and also um, internships. Right, um, because um, from an um, educator perspective, because we also you know um, educate um, our university students, because we had clearly seen you know, there's a huge gap you know between what they've learned at university versus you know, what they're going to do in their job, and also we see there's a big gap you know between um, the support that students they require to be successfully land a um, land a good job and post their uh, graduation. So uh, we're seeing a lot of like good technology and um, solutions just around the career and um, planning stage. Uh, so I guess this has um, typically moved you know, from, you know, um, when I was a student, I mean, and I have to rely quite heavily on those like website-based um, solutions you know, to get my um, career guidebook, but now into more um, those like one-to-one -one facilitation. You know, so um, like for um, example, um, Nevitas that we have um, invested quite heavily in those um, career planning and stage. So that one company that we invest in, they're actually um, they're building a platform that uh, university, they can you know, plug into their career services. So basically they provide loads of contents you know, for students and to navigate through you know, how they you know, should um, discover their career based on what, um, based on what they've learned, uh, and also you know, based on you know, and their CV letters, and how they should you know, draft those, and then until, and, and they can also you know, based on their student, their experience, and what they're interested in, to help them to match with those um, industry experts um, Network. Um, this reminds me a little bit. Sorry to interrupt, but it reminds me a little bit of when I was at, at sort of secondary school in the sort of mid late nineties. That um, you, you sort of put in your interests, and it would say, "Oh, you should go and be a policeman, or you should go and work in the army, or you should." And I'm not kidding. Once a career advisor told me I should consider being a career advisor because I didn't fit the pigeonholes. They, they said that to me too. Did they really? <laughs> I inputted music and psychology and got music psychologist. <laughs> That's amazing. That yeah. my, my I'm interested career. in uh, veterinary care and nursing. Mm. Be a vet nurse, uh, which is uh, what my wife is, in fact. Um, so <laughs> I assume that isn't what we're talking about here. It's a much more advanced, data-driven, informed service that isn't going to tell someone interested in music and psychology that they should be a music psychologist. No, no. So, uh, so I think that will be two components play into it. So one is uh, really based on the data-driven. You know, so you basically you have to answer lots of um, 
questions you know, um, based on this like huge database and trying to you know, um, figure out the, what you are good and what you are not uh, so good at. And then the other thing is, um, as we just touched before, that we have to bring those human components into it. So because you know, by leveraging you know, those um, industry experts, so basically students, that they can actually have those very interactive sessions with those people who are actually working in that field. So by talking to them, they can actually really understand you know, what they are searching for. So I guess like for those technology, they can actually really bring you know, those um, experts and alumni and, and also the students, they all together. So like, um, previously, you know, they probably have to you know, try very hard to connect each other. But now, because you have this like, huge database and have this like, huge network, it just become much easier to um, communicate. So yeah. we've, got, we've got these technologies. Um, we have to get people to want to use them, Cheska. People have to want to use these technologies. Um, you create one of them. So if you were going to university, for example, let's say Ben was in charge of deploying technologies, how do you convince Ben that what you've created is A, good for students, and B, not going to steal his job? Good. Good question. So I think it, that one of the big things we come across in schools is that the the technology that they might use may be great and maybe have so much research behind it and um, and somebody's really thought about it to develop in a great way, but it's given to them. They're given a login um, and great, off you go. And and that's that's where the issue lies. There's no one there to sort of say, oh, but why are we using this? How, how should we be using this? Um, and we know that teaching an individual or teaching a class looks very different if I've got my top set year eight and my middle set year eight. Like my lessons look very different. Um, so why would I not use this technology slightly differently? And why would I not tailor it in how I use it? So what we do is go to schools and understand them and understand their situation, their students, their devices they have, and, and then work with them and say, like, so what, how do you want to use this technology? Um, how could it help you and what, what solutions could we actually bring? Um, and then we'll work on a consistent way of using this because obviously if you try and implement anything across a secondary school that's inconsistent, all the kids know how to sort of work out a way around it. Yeah, I remember doing that. <laughs> so um, exactly, so if you have a consistent way of doing it, actually they, they see the benefit of it as well and they understand why they're doing it. And I think that's a big thing, um, why you're doing it at the outset. Um, same as we kind of try and promote why do you even need to bother learning on the platform um, is the massive step you need to take before you will then use it or and do anything about it because um, you care because um, the teachers they care but they only care about using something as a as a tool if they if they invest in it so, Ben I read a paper that you authored uh, recently relatively recently and you talked quite interestingly about how, in a way, these conversations aren't new. They've been going on for quite some time. I wonder if you could expand a little bit on how this, is, this conversation has developed over the last many years. Well, th these sorts of systems, like, like Century, were starting to be built in the very end of the 1970s. This is kind of like pre-internet, pre-personal computers. Um, and they were massive enterprises of programming by virtuoso individual program programmers which would work in one particular location and once that person moved on the system would just die the natural death of any large software system which isn't maintained so they kind of were, were built 
they, they were tried out on, on a few kids and then they died. Um, uh, what we have now uh, is the fact that we have the internet, we have many tools to help build these systems, and although they're still virtuoso uh, pieces of design work, we've got, we've got ways of doing that now that we didn't have in the very early days. Um, in the early days, you would recognize to some extent that what the systems were like. They, they, were, they individualized their, their interactions with, with, the, with the pupil. They tried to help where they could. They often would allow um, the person to type in in English or whatever language it was, uh, a query or whatever. Uh, they, would ask it, they would ask in English. But the other parts of the interface, the screens, you know, we, d we didn't have the whizzy screens that we have now because that's all developed over, over the last 20 or 30 years. So in the very early days, the guts of the systems were actually rather similar, but the outsides of the systems were completely different. It's interesting you mentioned language actually there because one of the points I was going to ask the, the whole panel is that often when we talk about AI, we talk about it in the context of STEM subjects uh, and, and in particular technology and I think in particular uh, mathematics. That's not always the case, I believe, and language I think is one area where AI is proving to be very effective or is showing signs of being. Uh, that's that's for all of you to comment on. It's less a question, more a statement. <laughs> um, yeah, so we, I mean, we have um, key stage two learners, so in primary school, using our platform to learn about SPAG, so all your spelling, punctuation, grammar skills, um, as well as reading skills, because actually without the skills, it it is quite hard to access um, sort of higher level texts and things. And even the secondary school students actually use some of our key stage two um, content on the platform because we realize actually they need to go back and review those skills um, and then fast forward to GCSE we have English literature English language um, because there are elements that you can learn independently and that's essentially what you do in our system and then it it shows you where else to go so it is definitely not just a, a maths and science thing even though yes we're, we're championing technology it, it, it is used everywhere we use technology and sort of every aspect of our lives now. Ben, yeah, sure. Um, we've still got a long way to go uh, with AI in building systems that can actually have a conversation like this. I mean, they, they, there are systems that can do reasonably well on fixed topics over short durations and can, can kind of fool you that they're intelligent over that kind of time scale. But to actually, you know, meet a stranger, go through the rituals of, as it were, how are you, this is who I am, who are you, actually have the kind of conversation that even three-year-olds can manage is actually beyond the state of the art at the moment. So if you think about the way that language is uh, applied in schools, kids trying to explain something that they only half understand themselves, so their language is, you know, that they use the wrong words, their sentences aren't proper sentences, or we, none of us speak in proper sentences, we might write in them, but we don't speak in them. Um, that's very difficult for a system to actually understand, and likewise, although um, a system can generate uh, language very well, and even even we don't all have to sound like Daleks now of, with computer-based systems. For the system to understand what the st what the student is saying or what the student's explanation is, is actually they can do it up to a point, but it's still fragile. Um, and uh, so we shouldn't, in terms of actually, if we wanted to learn French in a conversational way 
that's going to be quite difficult. We can learn French with Duolingo, but what that's doing is it's teaching you how to say particular words or very short phrases. It's not actually teaching you to, to have a conversation in French. Okay? And that's, that's somewhere yet to go. And do you see demand, Christina, for, for these, kind of, these kind of systems, lang you know, language-based um, solution? I hate using the word solutions. <laughs> I sound like a salesperson. Um, but do you see a, a demand for that kind of thing? Yeah, so, um, so we quite often that we come across those like um, language learning uh, applications, um, especially, you know, uh, for those, they are built in those um, applications you know, to teach those non-English speaking um, people, right? And then some of them, they do, you know, use AI in that technology. I think that's probably more in the way that, you know, to correct those students that, you know, their pronunciation and probably identify there's a particular deficiency in their grammar. But um, I come Completely agree on, on Ben's point because uh, so far we haven't really seen much um, technology that will be really and generate a very meaningful conversational thing. I think that more um, just in terms of this like short phrases and um, really help you to um, correct your pronunciation. Yeah, so I so I think in that space still have a way to go. And also you know for them to really um, to bring this one into the market, so they do have to you know collect like loads of um, low, like lots of data um, and 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 also probably um, record like many of those like um, native English um, speaking people how they pronounce it and to and can really train the machine to to do it yeah. so it's a hard work then no i'd just like to come back on this issue about why ai and education systems have tended to work in stem subjects and not really branch out into in in into into art subjects essentially it's because they're designed to try to have a really detailed overview of what the student is doing and to help them with their problem solving at a very fine-grained level not just is your answer right or wrong but is this step a good step to take towards that answer and in order to do that they have to have a theory of how that particular domain hangs together they have to understand physics or they have to understand the maths or they have to understand the mechanics for philosophy or for English literature there, we don't operate it. There, there isn't a model of English literature that you can you can build into a computer such that you do problem solving in literature. Um, so that's why they've tended to operate in a particular sets of subjects because actually those subjects allow you to build a model of the subject and also to build a model of the student's acquisition of the knowledge and skills in that subject, which is much harder in in social sciences and arts and humanities. It's interesting because I, I studied uh, philosophy at A-level and we would go through what is a fairly traditional uh, class of uh, sort of course of moral dilemmas. You know, a train's going down a track, it can go two ways. On, on one track is, a, is a, an infant and on the other track is someone who's homeless. Argue which way you should intervene to send the track to. And a computer, I mean, it might be quite terrifying that a computer would make that decision based on, on what? On the baby's potential value to society? The, the homeless person's value is, I don't even know, I don't want to be offensive, but, you know, like, it's quite terrifying in a way. I guess why it sticks to maths all of the time. <laughs> well, I think in general, you know, with all of the other areas of AI outside education, it is terrifying where people defer to the system rather than saying the system is going to give you some advice you know the system says based on my analysis of a trillions of, of bytes of data i believe you should do this not that it's going to do it it says look that's my view you're the human you take the decision 
I'm only giving advice. And the trouble is that, that people defer to computers these days, you know, that, that you know, your mortgage is, is as likely to have been decided by a computer, whereas actually it should be decided by the, the bank manager. You know, he can use or she can use the computer to help. Shouldn't be the computer deciding. Um, and we've kind of lost track of, the, of, of what, what agency as humans we have in society and have allowed systems to overstep themselves. It's great, in medicine for example, it's great that computers can do sometimes better diagnosis than doctors, but nobody is suggesting that it should be the computer that makes the final decision about whether to operate or not. So the doctor has to do that. And we need to make that, keep that balance in mind. I, I'm really worried about the way that AI is treated like a kind of all-seeing God that we should just sort of bow down before, even though I've worked in AI for, well, actually, because I've worked in AI <laughs> for 40 years, it shouldn't be like that. Well, we've got time just for one last, uh, one last topic uh, before we get dragged off stage by the metaphorical uh, walking stick from this chap uh, sitting here. Um, so we, we talk about technology, we talk about the classroom, there's a debate going on as to whether kids, particularly children, have too much technology, whether classrooms have too much reliance on tech, and if, and if that is true, that it reduces their ability to have natural human interactions that help them with social skills, uh, with just how to simply talk to one another. Um, so I want to just close on that point with a, a point perhaps from each of you as to how you think we maintain that balance between a reliance on computers but a, you know, a fundamental desire to still talk to our fleshy cousins. <laughs> yeah, I think in, in schools it's really hard because kids are really engaged with their phones, um, sometimes more than they want to be engaged in your lesson. So actually, um, what I've seen in schools anyway, and um, going around to lots of them, is actually having a real um, attitude towards using technology in the school that's part of your policy. So actually one school had a, we use our phones for learning. So they said, so they're basically building those digital skills in their students of how to use your phone probably as a business person as well. So you can schedule when your homework's due, you can um, take notes at sort of allowed times and things like that. So actually building those digital skills for, for students to understand why you might use this technology to help you and, and when it's less appropriate to use is actually building that ethos in them to go into whichever career. Um, they go into because that, that is actually something that will a real skill that they're going to need it's a good segue for christina i think <laughs> yeah so um so i would always think that um, technology should always be used as a um enable um, just as an enabler to you know to improve the classroom and and, and also to improve the student learning outcome so um, i think probably a good way to do it is you know to um to you know to balance this um human contact and also technology because i think you know when the student they're trying to learn the technology it'll be always you know, better to put them in a group so they can always you know trying to learn from each other and try to um, collaborate and to solve um, something all together you know, through technology so i think you know that's the way so um they can be both digitally savvy and 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 also know how to work with each other ben you get the final word I think in the UK, schools aren't really very relaxed institutions at all. We've, we've managed to get ourselves into a situation where teachers and, and, and head teachers are driven by government edict to behave in particular kinds of ways. They're testing the kids the whole, the whole time. There are league tables. 
it's, they aren't really places for relaxed education as I see it. And I really fear that adding more technology in, there won't be the time for the fleshy interactions that, that, that you like. Um, I'm always amazed when my colleagues who are interested in using computers for collaborative work say, ah, oh, but we can get kids in, in, you know, in, in Shoreditch to work with kids in Finland, but why don't they just work with the kid in the next door desk? That would be really good. Okay. So. What a soundbite to end on, ladies and gentlemen. Um, ben, Christina, Cheska, thank you so much for being here. Uh, and thank you all for listening intently. Uh, please give these guys a round of applause. Thank you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.